You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. Luke 11, verses 1 to 13. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, Yet because of his impudence, he will arise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly (coughs) Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The word of the Lord. Well, we've been um, discovering over the last few weeks as we've been looking at Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer uh, that uh, we've had different experiences in churches growing up. In fact, some people have no experience in church when they were growing up, and we're glad you're here. Uh, We're glad God got a hold of you and you're here with us today. And there's some that had uh, great experiences in church growing up. There's uh, some people said the Lord's Prayer all the time. Some never did. And even those who said the Lord's Prayer, we said differences about trespasses or sins or debts or the evil one or deliver us from evil. And um, today in this little mini series within the gospel of Luke is not about should you say this and how frequently should you say it and all those kinds of restrictions. It's simpler, all those, um, that kind of guidance. It's that there's concepts that Jesus is teaching his disciples that those who are saying, I'm a follower of God, Jesus is teaching the followers of God how to pray. Now, the two that we're going to look at today, the two pieces of the Lord's Prayer that we're going to look at today are a little tricky, though I will say not for me, because I actually had a, I had a really positive experience when I was growing up, and I have great memories of church and things like that, and I think it was formative for me. But I want to, I want to acknowledge that that's not the case for everybody, that there are um, several people that growing up has not been a good experience for them. Um, <clears throat> after church one Sunday, about five or so years ago, right after the service, this couple comes up to me after the sermon and, or after the service, and they've got tears in their eyes. And so we sort of stepped that way a little bit. And I said, yeah, yeah can I help you? And he, he had this big pause and he goes, you know, we've never liked church. Okay, 
finish your thought, please. <laughs> what does that mean? Like, and we hated yours too. We're out of here. And he's going to go. And he said, we've never liked church. And there was this big pause. And then I, they could see that I was struggling. And she was like, explain it. And so she explained it. And um, they just had a really rough time growing up in church. Some of, the, some of it because of the concepts that we'll talk about here in just a minute, but they had a really rough time and they said, but God's brought us back around and, and we love it and everybody here is so nice and so great and it's so warm and, and we feel like we love church again. And I thought, I thought oh, this is awesome. This is so great. And then they said, we're also saying bye because we're moving to Florida. <laughs> they moved to Florida before moving to Florida was cool. They were heading down there. And so I remember thinking like, I wanna meet with them. I wanna talk. Oh, okay, well, bye. And so it's interesting, like, our spot in their journey, <coughs> excuse me, may have been largely to help them heal from some wounds that they've had with regards to the church in the past. And so I'm, I'm sensitive to this. There's, there's uh, people here that over time, um, you know, when they were growing up, it might be part of our job to help you rebuild a little bit, to help you see church and maybe even God, if you tie those two things that closely, um, to see church in a good manner and to see God in an even more glorious and more exalted manner. There's people that grew up that have very, um, you could say legitimate hurt towards the church. Um, wounds that need to be healed. And some of it, it has to do with some of these words that maybe came up quite a bit. Words like guilt, sin, temptation. You could put wrath in here too. Hell, justice, judgment. That those kinds of things, that's what was really preached over and over. It was spoken from here. It was spoken in Bible studies. It was spoken in conversations. And over time, if that's all you hear and you don't hear about the grace and the mercy and the love and forgiveness of God with that, what can happen um, is, <coughs> excuse me, um, somebody up here saying that can come across very condemning if they're not careful. And so you can hear it and you can start to think, well, he wouldn't be saying this if he didn't have it all together. And all these other people, I guess, seem to have everything together. And so I obviously don't because I know me and I know my life. And so this distance between leaders in the church and the perception of the church and the individual can start to all of a sudden just become this huge chasm. There can be wounds that develop from this. There's another group <clears throat> that's probably going, well, I don't know anything about that. I didn't realize that was that big a deal. Or maybe you, you did, but you go, my experience was really great. It was kind of the opposite. We talked about these things, but they were measured, and we talked about you know, the grace and the mercy and the love and forgiveness of God in tandem with it. So I, I actually, like me, I had a real positive experience with church. But this is the question that I was asking myself is, did I really hear about these things in a measured way or were the pastors and churches and things that I was involved in, was it, well, we're not gonna be the hellfire brimstone kind of people. So all we're gonna talk about is the love and the grace and the mercy and all that. Not understanding what you are forgiven for, not understanding that God is angry at sin, but just talking about love. And so there might've been an error on the other side as well. And so somewhere the reality is along this spectrum, whatever that is, most of us fall probably somewhere in the middle. Maybe there's some wounds or maybe there's um, some things that people should have said that didn't, they didn't say, but I'm going to do you a favor today because we're going to talk about this in a very measured, accurately, a biblically accurate way. Because my guess is no, no matter where anybody is on this, everybody would like to know more about the depth of the love of God. We need to. 
So the, the uh, stop talking about sin and start talking about love doesn't really uh, work. In other words, we have to understand our own unlovability, our inherent unlovability of who we are before uh, in, in the eyes of the holy God in order to understand his great love that he poured out onto us. We have to understand our sin. We have to understand temptation that we've given into. We have to understand a full picture of the nature of God so we can know what we have been forgiven from so we can appreciate the love of God. If you don't understand sin and temptation, then we can't understand the love of God. Or I said it like this. Only when we agree with God on the depth of our sin can we agree with God on the depth of his love. Only when we agree with God on the depth of our sin, then can we agree with God on the depth of his love. We have to understand who we are and what he has done so we can fully appreciate his love for us. Two phrases today that are a little, I guess, I don't know if problematic is quite the right way to say it, but he says, lead us not into temptation. That's part of the Lord's prayer. And then it says, forgive our sin. Lead us not into temptation. Let's start there today. And we'll talk this through. You, you, I doubt you remember, but about four or so years ago, this actually came up when we were studying Matthew's gospel because um, the Catholic Church was looking at, is still looking at changing this language in the Lord's Prayer, or they call it the Our Father, that they say. And the reason for it is, is you can see, lead us not into temptation. It feels weird, doesn't it, to say, God, don't lead me into temptation, and so essentially what the Catholic Church has said is this is not a good translation. It is not God who leads us into this temptation. In fact, let me show you. Pope Francis said it like this. It's been about 20 years I've been working on this, by the way. He says, it's not a good translation to say lead us not to temptation because it speaks of a God who induces temptation. I am the one who falls. It's not him pushing me into temptation to then see how I have fallen. A father doesn't do that. A father helps you up immediately. It's Satan who leads us into temptation. That's his department. So they're having a hard time, by the way, in the Catholic Church because um, it's in, you know, the, it's all over the world. It's in um, umpteen different languages. And some of the languages actually have it translated quite well. And then some of them, like English, can be a little bit confusing. And so they're having to go through every single language and figure out, okay, you guys are good. You guys are good. We need to change this and change this to give the spirit of what he's actually saying. And the question here is, <clears throat> does God lead us into temptation? Does God lead us into temptation? The answer is no, but you can see by saying, lead us not to temptation, it feels like we're thinking that he does. Look, look at James chapter one, this will come up. Um, when something is unclear, we'll see if there's a very clear spot in the scripture. And here it is, James one. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one, that's pretty clear. Then it gives the negative of it. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. I think in the Eastern context, they wouldn't have had the confusion that we might, because I think this is a nod to the sovereignty of God in all things is what it's saying. But a, a better translation would be something like, let me not be tempted or keep temptation far from me. 
God is not the one who's causing it, but God is sovereign over all the world is essentially what this is saying. So when we say, lead us not into temptation, we're essentially saying, let us not be led into temptation. Keep temptation from me. Why? Because I'll give in. That's what we're saying before God. Now, you might be thinking, do we really need to talk about this? Do we need to get this nuance of, does God do the tempting or not? And I'm going to say yes for a couple reasons. One, it has to do with how we understand the nature and the character of God. But number two, by saying God is the one that has tempted me to do it, um, it, it is a sophisticated way of doing what they did back in Genesis. Don't eat the tree. You ate the tree. Adam, why'd you eat from the tree? Eve made me do it. Eve, why'd you eat from the tree? The serpent made me do it. Okay, here's your punishment. It's she made me do it. He made me do it. It's the blame game. And you can see in our culture today a subtle shift of not taking our own responsibility for our sin. And in fact, if you watch, it's very sophisticated, but it has been turned towards God in a couple different ways. Let me give you a couple. One is to say, God, you're the one that made me this way. Or number two, God, you're the one that put me in this place or in this situation. So because you made me this way or because I'm in this place or I'm in this situation or in this life stage, it is your fault that I'm giving in to sin. This is how the argument goes. I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, let's, let's go with the first one. God, you made me this way. This used to be called temptation that we are supposed to resist and we are supposed to confess when we cross the line. But instead we say, you made me this way. I was born this way. I feel this way, or this is who I am. And because we say that God is the one that made me, I now have the divine stamp of approval to do whatever it is I want to do. That's the worldly logic today. And there's a lot of different areas we could get into, I understand. I'll give you one in particular that came up sort of recently. There is a coach that I've, he's not on our team, but he's another team. And um, he has a horrible temper. I've probably told you about him before. Will not say his name, has a horrible temper. He says he's not a believer or he's kind of wondering about being a believer. He's not a believer. And um, he he has terrible temper. And he has said almost explicitly to me, you're a pastor, didn't God make me? And he made me and I have a temper. So should be, basically, it should be okay that I have a temper because God made me this way and therefore that's who I am. So ah, you didn't think about that one, did you, God, is essentially what he's saying. And we, we got into it a little bit. I didn't let him off the hook on that one, I assure you, to say God made me a certain way, therefore I get to do whatever it is. This is people that say, I'm just kind of an aggressive person by nature, or I'm just a fighter. You know, I get in the room and I'm just, uh, maybe it's not like physical fighting, but it is, I'm argumentative in what I do, which usually means there's no tact and graciousness in the person's spirit. It's not an excuse to just go, hey, I'm aggressive, I'm a fighter, so that's just who I am and that's what I'm gonna do. Is this what God would have me do? Or is this a temptation that I need to be careful of? This, is, this comes up all the time with, um, with men in pornography, for example. Hey, I'm a man cheating on the spouse. Come on, I mean, I'm, a, I'm an adult. I, I, I go and I do this. I need this. It's not happening at home, so I'm gonna go do it. Or this is the, the one that comes up all the time. I've never said this to my son. Boys will be boys. 
That's just, I don't know if there's a girls will be girls equivalent, maybe so, but I hear boys will be boys all the time. Like to just justify little boys or, or big boys, like running around doing whatever they want. Oh, boys will be boys. It's like, well, that's kind of how you're made. And so if you give in to the typical sins of maleness in our world, boys will be boys. That's how God made you. It's okay. And it's not. But you see how we justify it? Or the other one is um, God put me in this place or put me in this situation. This is um, a spouse that gets married and we know biblically, so I'll speak for myself. I know biblically that I am supernaturally one with Nikki, my wife. She is the one, love her as Christ of the church. She's the one that I'm supposed to die for. God has given me this bullseye, this focus, and I know who is my, my, the one for me on earth. It's Nikki, that's that. Except we have kids. And then as soon as kids come into the picture, isn't it easy to take spouse, kids, and kind of go, we gotta do this. We'll get back to our marriage in like 25 years when the kids are gone, right? But what happens? Well, the reason we do, I mean, come on, it's just life. I mean, he's put me in this world and it's just so busy. It's like there's forces out there that are outside of my control that are making me do this instead of owning it or forsaking a spouse, say, for a job or for money or whatever. It's just a phase of life. I've got to do this. It's just how the world works. I'm so busy, that's because that's how the world works. Instead of saying, God, what would you have for me? I'll blame it on something out there. And usually we just say, God, this is the place you have put me. This is the way you have made me. And so, yeah, I'm not perfect, but I'm not gonna repent either. This is, um, <clears throat> I've talked to grandparents. I'm learning a lot about grandparents. Grandparents that go, oh, I don't, don't cross my grandkid kind of thing. That's how grandparents are. I learned a little bit when I became a parent to go, oh, okay, this is how parents are. And there was like this parent code or grandparent code that almost like for some people supersedes what the scriptures teach. Think about like today with teenagers. Hey, some teenagers, this is what teens do. This is just how we live. Or, or you go off to college. This is just what college kids do. And look, it's all around us. It's so permeating our culture. The fault is out there instead of in here. And somehow, God, you have made me this way. You have put me in this situation and therefore I'll live this way instead of stopping to say, I'm tempted to give in to sin. And when I cross lines, I will declare it to be sin. Amen. In fact, to have to say, God, do me a favor. Don't even let me be tempted because I know that I'll mess it up. We don't say God is the one tempting me. So just a couple ways that this could play out. Um, <clears throat> whenever we do have these temptations, whenever we have sin, to get back to something, I can't even believe we have to say this because it's like, it feels so antiquated now to say, this is temptation. I do not want to cross this line. It is not God's fault. It is not my culture's fault. Uh, I agree with the, the Pope on this particular thing anyway, to say it's, I am the one that has been dragged away. I am the one that has turned. To confess that to really do the exact same thing that we would expect of anybody else in the world. Like think about a kid that just starts blaming, 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 and we go, you gotta own this. This is what he did in Genesis. Adam tried to go, no, it was her, no, it was him. And then what does he do? Uh, you guys are paying the penalty for what you have done. But can I just say, as a church community, here's something else I think is really, really important because we can also normalize um, poor behavior, if you will, in other people. If I were to sit with some friends and I were to share some things about some temptations, some struggles in my life, and they were to go, I get it, I, I understand. 
yeah, it's that phase of life and it's busyness and you got to make the money and you got to get your kids to these places. You got to do all this. I understand, I understand, I understand, I understand. And then that's the end of the conversation. What I just heard was, I understand and it's okay. You know what a good, gracious, loving Christian thing to do is? If you understand to say, I understand. I do understand. Yeah, the world's telling you this. You're kind of wired like this. I get why there's temptation to go that way. But to simply end it by saying, how can I help? What can I do for you? It shouldn't be an option to just stay in it as you are gonna repent and turn from this. How can I, as your Christian brother, your Christian sister, how can I play a role in helping you? How can I help? But it is so, I'm sensitive to this, it is so difficult to admit our wrongdoings because as a culture, we are terrible, terrible, terrible at forgiving, aren't we? I had a whole page listed of like justification for, let me, just, let me just convince you that we're bad at forgiving. And I was going to read it and I literally went, they don't need to hear that. We know that we are terrible at forgiving. In fact, to not forgive somebody else is really how um, it gives weak people a sense of power, doesn't it? I'm not going to forgive you. I'm gonna hold this grudge and it gives me a sense of power over you. This is the world that we live in. <clears throat> There's a, um, Ricky Gervais just got in a little trouble recently. He did a, um, he's a comedian from um, England and he, uh, he had this quote. He said, you can't predict what will be offensive in the future. And then he said this, I thought it was spot on. You don't know who the dominant mob will be. By the way, he's a devout atheist. He'd love that I'm quoting him in a sermon right now. (laughs) Why are we bad at forgiving? Well, I'm not even sure what the rules are gonna be here in the next few years based on our culture. I don't know what kind of mistakes I'm gonna make and it's just easier to just be unforgiving. Or maybe I don't feel forgiven and it's eating me up. And so if I just don't forgive you, well, we'll be feeling terrible together. But boy, we like watching the mighty fall too, don't we? Somebody makes one mistake, never watching another one of their movies. One mistake, I'll never vote for them. We are not a forgiving people, which makes it very difficult because the rest of the verse says, forgive us our sins. And it says, as we forgive those who are indebted to us, All right, now think about this for just a minute. Does this mean, hey God, the way that I forgive my brother and sister in Christ, I'd like you to forgive me in the same way. Let me say, I hope that's not what it means. I want God to forgive me how God forgives. And then what this actually does mean is, God, I have your forgiveness. Now I am able to go and give forgiveness to other people. When you are forgiven, then you have the capacity to forgive other people. As you have forgiven me, so I will forgive others. And it goes like this. I have been forgiven so much because I acknowledge my tempta- the temptation, I acknowledge the sin in my life, and I acknowledge the forgiveness of God. And I have been forgiven so much, and it is a liberating feeling. 
I want others to experience that. That's what this means. Being forgiven breeds more forgiveness. When I understand my forgiven status before God, it fuels me to see how petty it is to, be, to not be forgiving to other people. But it is interesting. Like we have this um, forgive us our sins. And so we go, wait a minute. If I am a Christian, I thought I was forgiven before Christ. So is this something where periodically I'm having to go, I need to get saved again. 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 Well, that probably doesn't sit right with you. When there's something that's not clear, we'll look for things that are clear. I got a, I got a, a pastor friend that, um, or a guy I met, I guess I should say, that was telling a story to a whole bunch of pastors. And this was in a, um, a Baptist context. So you come to faith and then you're baptized and it's generally by immersion. Um, <clears throat> and, and he was telling us this story that uh, a guy with a horribly, horribly checkered background, I mean, uh, drugs and prison and, and on and on and on and, um, God got a hold of him, complete, utter turnaround in his life. And uh, he came to faith in Jesus Christ and they baptized him in front of the church, big church. So he's up there getting baptized. This guy, the pastor is telling us this story. This guy gets up there and he's, he shared his past and it's a rough past and he's sharing it for everybody and made people a little uncomfortable in that context anyway, just kind of, ooh, okay, that's, that's really, really bad. And now here he is, like, coming to faith. And they, so he said it was already super uncomfortable in the room, but then he just shared about the grace of God. He had this guy share his story, and so it's this incredibly moving moment. And he baptizes him, and, you know, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, brings him up, and the guy comes up and goes, wow. And then when he does it, the crowd goes wild. He, he gets water in his mouth, and he starts, like, coughing, like... <laughs> sitting there doing that. And so the pastor's telling us a story that he's got this guy here, this incredibly moving moment. There's this big pause. And then the guy goes, oh, and then cusses into the microphone. <laughs> I won't repeat it. You, I'll let your imagination do it. But so he's sitting here. And so we were all like, oh my gosh, what did, what did you do? And he said, I didn't hesitate. He said, I kicked his feet out, shoved him under again, pulled him up. <laughs> And I said, it doesn't look like the first one took. We better do that again. <laughs> now I know what I'm doing if somebody says something while we're baptizing. But he, he said that sort of jokingly, but the idea of like, you know, you've come to faith and we're celebrating that and then, oh, sin. Oh, do we need to get saved again? Do we need to baptize you again? And on and on and on. And that's not what this is talking about here. What this is talking about is we're agreeing with God about our sin, and it is not talking about positional alienation before God. It's talking about relational alienation before God. You could think of it like this. If my wife asks me, I'm going to meet her later, and she says, before you leave, can you do this one thing with the kids, whatever it is? Can you do this? It's very important. I'll have to meet you at the dinner party or at the so-and-so's house. Can you do this? And I go, no problem. I'm glad to do it. She says, it's very important you do it. Can you please do it? And she writes it down, you know, all that for me. And I've got it. There's no problem. I got it. And then I get that. She's like, okay, good. Takes it out of her mind. She goes and does her thing. And then I go to meet her at the party. And as I'm walking in to go in the door, I think, oh, I didn't do the one thing that she asked me to do. And so I walk in and I want to just go, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I didn't do the thing that you asked me to do. But people are around, so it's not a good opportunity for me to share anything. And so we just sit at dinner and I'm sitting there with knowledge 
of this sin in my life, and she has no idea. I know that she stands ready to forgive me as soon as I tell her. But when I, when I tell her that, that is the opportunity for her to say, I love you and I forgive you and we'll figure this out. There's a relational component that is off until I've gone and confessed. I'm not worried about our covenant relationship. I'm worried about just our relationship up to that moment. You know, I told you I was gonna do you a favor saying that when we agree with God on the depth of our sin, only then can we agree with God on the depth of his love. Um, you will not understand the, uh, the depth of his love until we understand what we have been forgiven of. The debt we owe God is not a small one. Our sin chasm is great. It is not, uh, you know, if someone came to me and said, you owe me, me $10,000, I could figure out how to do $10,000 and do it and get out of jail or whatever it is. But if somebody came and said, to get out of jail, you owe me $10 trillion, I would say there is nothing in the world that I can do to remedy that. That's what it means before God to say, my sin is so great, there's nothing I can do on my own. The debt is too big, and so God has to do the saving work. And it's not just this transactional type debt, even though I just sort of made it sound like it is. It's a moral debt that we have before God as well. So think of it like this. A little boy goes into a, a convenience store and he gets a pack of gum and it's $2 and he only has $1. And he holds up the gum and then he holds up a dollar and she says, I'm sorry, that's not enough. And you're nice and so you're standing next to him and so you go, I have a dollar, no problem. And then what happens? She has to take that because it's legal tender, it's money. So she's going to take it and the boy is gonna get his thing. That's a transaction that's happening. But picture it like this. The boy goes in, wants to take a gum, and he says, all I have is a dollar. And she says, it's not enough. And he goes, and then he grabs the gum and he turns and he takes off to steal it. And on his way out, he runs smack dab into a police officer. And the woman's going, stop thief, stop thief. And he goes out and the police officer gets him. And he comes back in, he drags the boy, what's, what's going on here? And she says, um, he only had a dollar and he stole it. And now someone is going, well, I can give you another dollar to help cover the cost. But what's different now? She doesn't have to accept it because now he's broken a moral law. And now that boy is sitting there, regardless of, do I have the dollar that can make this work? He's looking and thinking, I am completely at your mercy. And imagine if she goes, go ahead, I'll pay the cost. We have a moral debt before God. If it's just transactional, then we might be able to earn it on our own. And we can't. That's why it's important to understand the gravity and the weight of how far we are from him so we can understand the chasm that he has bridged between us. I haven't shown this video in about four years or so since it actually happened, but I wanna give you an example of this to see what happens when the transgression is so great and love is extended, you can see how love is seen to be so great. If it's just a little transgression, then you go, eh, that's nice and loving. But when it's a big deal, then you see love is a big deal. This is um, Botham Jean. This is from September, 2018. A, a Dallas police officer went into an apartment thinking that it was her own apartment. 
And she saw someone in there, thought it was an intruder, and she shot and killed the intruder. And she had actually gone into his apartment. So they went to, uh, they went to trial. She, um, she was indicted on a murder charge. And um, you'll hear the name Botham in this. That's the man's name that got shot. And um, this is the, um, the brother of Botham, Jean, in court as they are sentencing the woman who shot him. Will you play that, please, Grace? I can speak for myself. I, I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. And I don't think anyone could say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself, not even bad for my family. But I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I, see, I, I personally want the best for you. And I, I wasn't going to ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you because I know that's what that's exactly what both of them would want you to do and the best would be give your life to Christ I'm not going to say anything else I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do again I love you as a person, and I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can, can I give her a hug, please? Please? Yes. When we understand and acknowledge the depth of our sin and then we receive love from the one that we've offended. It's a pretty remarkable thing. That's why we understand the depth of our sin. Such is the love of God for us. Jesus gave his body that we might have life. And so as we take communion together today, would you remember how deep the Father's love for us? Thanks be to God.